Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. My guest on this episode is an award-winning author, playwright, and performer. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, A.L. Kennedy. Very glad to be here. How are you doing? Good, yeah. Um, I, you know, in, in, in my house in the middle of a field, just discovered that the badger has eaten a bit of a flower bed. Bless it. Um, no, all good. Good. And what's keeping you busy at the moment work-wise? Have you got books underway at the moment that you're working on? Well, you know, in the continuing collapse of uh, Britain, um, I've got two books out, but only out in Germany. So I am not working on the next book because it kind of sort of clogs your creative process to... I mean, I'm thinking about another book, but it's another book is for Switzerland. It's just crazy at the moment trying to... uh, renegotiate the whole kind of we don't like the arts we're not going to fund anything cultural sort of landscape i mean really interesting to re-listen to elvis and his variations on a theme of outrage and to think god yeah you know so much of this stuff was beautifully and succinctly put 30, 40, 50 years ago. <laughs> 50 years now? Go on. Please don't let it be. But yeah, I mean, it's a while, isn't it? Yeah, well, we're coming up for that point. Yeah, we're, what, 46 years since his debut album. So yeah, getting on for that, yeah. And what about music? Does that play a role in your work? Do you take inspiration from it? Do you listen to it while you're writing and let it shape the way that you're going with pieces? Yeah, um, I started out writing in tiny tiny flat like a one and a half room flat in Glasgow with incredibly noisy neighbours and they got incredibly noisier at night which is when I was working because I worked in the day to actually make money so I would I I had to play music Um, so there's a lot of books I wrote an entire book just listening to Juliet letters I do remember maybe what becomes Obviously, I had a collection of short stories called All the Rage, which genuinely is to do with that song. <laughs> uh, maybe literally to do with that song. He has lovely titles. Um, and there's a load of travel, particularly in the days when things weren't as easy with media. I have my little Walkman and I would listen to the album that I had on my Walkman. So there would be a little, hours and hours and hours of train journeys going here, there and everywhere listening to spike the album forever or you know whatever it was so a a lot of very uh, inadvertently obsessive listening i like obsessive listening because it's sort of comforting and you're listening but you're not listening um but it was sort of enforced back in those days Mm. can you remember the first music that moved you my parents uh had a weird selection of music. I mean, I remember there was a soundtrack for Magic Roundabout, <laughs> the movie. Right. Uh, I remember listening to that a lot. Uh, and there were uh, we had some Beatles albums, 
we had the ones with the, you know, the uh, this is going to be, I do like the Beatles, but I'm not obsessive. So the ones where they had the cover of the Beatles looking down over a square stairwell, because they were a little bit into popular music, but not very much, you know, and you sort of had to have those two. Uh, yeah, so it was, a, it was a weird mix, and my mum was really into strangely happy music for the state of her marriage. I think she was cheering herself up. I'm like, I remember coming home as a kid, and I thought my mother had the radio on because somebody was singing, "We're all going to the zoo tomorrow," and actually, it was my mum singing. But she was such a good singer that, uh, you know, I, I thought she was the radio. Um, so it was quite quite a mix, and you had a lot of classical because we had to pretend that we were intellectuals because it was a university family. So it was a real mix of not very much kid stuff, silly stuff, weird stuff. I'm growing up in the late 60s, early 70s. You can't really avoid incredibly wonderful music um, and the stuff we had in the house. And my dad did passive-aggressive uh, piano playing when he wasn't sp speaking to us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, it, okay. it took me a long time to like uh, piano music that was not accompanied by something else to hide it. Right. Well, to stick with the idea of aggression, um, there was an interview in The Times a few years ago when you talked about your love of Elvis Costello's music. And you said, I love his anger, his wit his off-kilter poetry and dark interior journeys. How did you first come to his music? I, I'm, I, mean, I was such a conventional kid. I was so desperately trying to get things right and study and be busy. And I didn't have a lot of time to do the enjoyment things. And I also, I didn't have a lot of friends and I also didn't really want a lot of friends because they weren't really interested in most of the things I was interested in. But there was a bit of a crossover once you started to get into into music. And Elvis was sort of attractive but disturbing because he had the punk thing, but it was quite a strange punk thing. Punk was too punk for me and I was a bit too young, really to get it but you know I loved his videos and of course he wrote this song Alison and I remember being in the bit of boots that used to sell 45s and you'd go to boots when you had a bit of money and you'd buy your 45s and they, and they would play in that corner of boots uh, whatever you know a selection of the things that you could buy and and I didn't know about Alison. I must have been doing exams or something. Um, and suddenly there's this very intimate, accusing, confusing, peculiar, aggressive and yet broken voice singing my name. Um, and my immediate response to everything at that age, and, and partly now, is, you know, guilt. And it's, it's an accusatory song. <laughs> I was like, well, now, now everything's on my case. Because <laughs> this was like the youth thing that I could do, and I would relate to other people, and it was a thing that my parents didn't have. It's like, oh, I can't even have that now. Um, but I loved that he saw he couldn't dance. I mean, he sort of could. He was doing a thing. He was doing a thing that was partly a man who was very drunk in the videos. But I, I also 
couldn't dance but with enthusiasm and would do it anyway and i that was very comforting um like the video for oliver's army which really looked as if he was in an altered state of some kind um i just kind of loved it <laughs> uh, i like awkward men oh it's so funny to be seeing you after so long girl and with the way you Understand that you were not impressed, but I heard you let that little friend of mine take off your party dress. I'm not gonna get too sentimental like those other stick of Valentines, cause I don't know if you are loving somebody. So, as you know, everyone who comes on to the show has to pick six of their favourite Elvis Costello songs to put on a playlist for this season of the podcast. This season's playlist is called Bedroom Alibis and is up on my website now, dangerousamusements.co.uk. And your 1970s choice there, Alison, and we don't normally allow duplicates in the same season of the podcast, but I've now had two guests on this season, both with the first name, Alison. How could I possibly tell one of you that you couldn't pick that song with your name on? So you mentioned your experience of first hearing that song, but what about buying it and getting My Aim Is True? When did that come about? I remember seeing the publicity for it, but I was, you know, picking through my life, just buying 45s. Um... I know that the angels want to wear my own shoes. I came across quite early, but it was it was kind of patchworked. Um, I think it will have been, you know, uh, a much later than when it came out purchase. But I didn't really have the sort of personal. I would have had to feel very very confident to buy a whole album. You know? <laughs> Not because I wasn't committed to to particular musicians, but my parents would have been divorced and we would have been very, very short of money. So I was really, you know, I, w I was picking and choosing out of albums. Alison was released on My Aim Is True in 1977, recorded in Pathway Studios and produced by Nick Lowe. Elvis describing the song as a premonition and his fear that he wouldn't be faithful or that his disbelief in happy endings would lead me to kill the love that I had longed for. And in that little quote of your own that I read back to you, you talked about his poetry and his imagery. Was that already a sensibility that you had as a, a budding young writer, even as a, you know, as a young child? Yeah, I mean, that, that description of his interior life is basically me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be loved, but please don't, because uh, then I'll somehow murder you by accident. Um, <laughs> and I, I love that duality. I mean, I was a very middle-aged, closeted, uh, forcibly academic kid until I got to university, so, so the world of, um, you know, I understood darkness, I understood fear, I understood relationships didn't work, but this, the, his, the versions of sexuality I didn't really understand because I was, you know, 
very straight. People kept trying to get me to undo my top button, literally just my top button, because it annoyed them. Um, so I, I, I didn't quite move into that area until, you know, everything went off like a hand grenade in 1983. <laughs> <laughs> At which point I appreciated all of his world. Yeah. Well, into the 1980s, this is, you mentioned to me, I think it was before we started recording, but what a big record spike was for you. And that's the album that you're going to take us to now for the song choice from the 1980s. One of the great totems of that decade for Elvis and Tramp the Dirt Down. I saw a newspaper picture from the political campaign a woman was kissing a child Who was obviously in pain She spills with compassion As that young child's face in her hands she grips Can you imagine all that greed And avarice coming down on that I was working in Clyde Bank, uh, all over Strathclyde, around uh, about then as well. I was exhausted all the time. I was only working with people that Margaret Thatcher didn't like, so multiple deprived communities with disabled people. I was working, uh, or I just finished working in an un unemployed workers' centre and actually seen the psychological impact of not having a job and not being able to be useful. I was broke. Every time I turned around, something else had happened that meant I would be more broke. Um, and that whole album, the whole vibe was so much what I was experiencing and how I felt, but very articulated the whole sort of tonal landscape of it and the darkness of it and the dark humour of, of God's comic. But Tramp the Dirt Down, that track particularly, it was just so furious, but also so sad and so despairing. And there are times when it doesn't make you despair more to just have somebody else acknowledge that you are despairing. And the complexity of it was extraordinary. And I, I, you know, up to a point, I didn't really get the last verse until Margaret Thatcher did die. And you, you were sitting there being a human being, being glad that a pathetic, demented old lady, albeit living in the Ritz, was dead, because you don't want to be that person. But her being a terrible person, sort of boxes you in a corner, as terrible people being terrible people always do box you into a corner and give you choiceless choices. That's when I didn't have a telly because I couldn't afford a telly, so I'd not seen him sing it. But seeing him sing it, I mean, you can't just half-heartedly deliver that song, but I mean, blah. <laughs> seeing the complete contempt, uh, seeing that absolute fury and contempt and despair, it's like, yeah, 
Yeah, I remember that. And it, and it's all relevant now. It's all relevant. It's such, you just change the name. And it's tempting to think, isn't it, that angry songs have to be loud, clattering musical performances. But the fact that Tramp the Dirt Down is a slower song and it's got pipes on it and the lyrics are so clear, it means that you, you can hear that contempt in Elvis's voice all the way through. Mm. Yeah. And I get he's got such a layered voice as well. He can be two, three things at once. And that's very helpful. And he understands himself as an instrument. And when there's something that's that's sort of operatic like that, he knows that he can deliver it in a way that yeah, the pipes give nuance, the lines give nuance, and the whole atmosphere. Uh, you know, but, but he understands what he can bring to it. And just to pick up on that point you made a moment ago about things are still like that now. You just changed the names. Elvis said, even just after the record had come out, he said, I honestly don't think it will change a thing. In a profound sense, the song is hopeless. It's a hopeless argument because I think it's a hopeless situation. Yeah, and as I say, sometimes it's just somebody else being there when everybody else is pretending and buying the shit they're told to buy in, in every possible sense. When you've got somebody saying, hell no, this is horrific. This is killing people. This, this, this is being expected to grovel by people who despise you. And I was listening to that record, having been a student who literally was one of a body of students who was who chased Margaret Thatcher's Rolls Royce off a university campus, um, and the the way that she sort of toyed with us, and the way we didn't know what to do with our anger. Um, Again, it was very there in that song and that sort of contempt. Mm. We have a lot of listeners overseas to the podcast, and I guess we, we'll have maybe people of my generation and younger who perhaps didn't fully experience the Thatcher years. Can you sum up what was it about Britain in the 80s and the way that it was governed that brought that anger out in so many people? Uh, you'd, you'd, you'd got after World War II a country that was broke, but it... it decided because it had to survive to value as many of its people as it possibly could and to help as many of its people to achieve the most they could. So we arranged a welfare state and that survived and the disparity between rich and poor in the 1970s were the lowest it has ever been. Uh, at which point this was rebranded as the unions having too much control and everything being too difficult and everything being wrong and not having enough opportunity but the opportunity was the opportunity to make ridiculous bets um, and help the country be looted so like Ronald Reagan in America you suddenly rearranged the financial uh, landscape so that millionaires got richer and everybody else got poorer you sold off at first gently all of the infrastructure of the country, uh, sold off the housing stock, sowed seeds of utterly poisonous trees that now are mature and you have a housing crisis, you have an NHS crisis, you have the most expensive trains in 
Europe, uh, the most expensive utility prices in the world. And people at the time said, if you sell everything that we hold in common, we will end up being in every sense bankrupt. And the weakest people will not just be hurt the most, but will be killed by this. And everybody ignored it. And it rolled on with happy, jokey adverts. And we are where we are now with Brexit and the you know, complete collapse of Britain. Um, I think recently Germany's refused to uh, agree to extradite somebody to Britain because our prison system is so terrible. I mean, it's just, yeah, we're a shithole, literally surrounded by uh, shit. Um, I make a good living out of describing how shitty everything is. <laughs> Now that we've decided to embrace fascism to the Germans, because they just find it inexplicable that the country that helped rescue them from fascism is now uh, it's completely forgotten uh, everything about what happens when, when you embrace fascism. Um, so, yeah, uh, Thatcher sort of brought that in. And everybody thereafter has somehow had to deal with her legacy and no one has dealt with it well. It's seen as a, a winning formula to uh, sell everything to your mates, get into public office and then sell everything to your mates. And then you end up with a country where you have a, a massive pandemic and your first thought is, wonderful, we can give billions to our mates and everyone will be too depressed and panicked to even notice. We'll, we'll give millions to companies that didn't exist a week ago with no oversight. Ka-ching. Oh yeah, loads of people are dying, but they'll just be the, the weak and poor. The poor can always die. Um, the logic was there and baked in baked in the 80s. Well, the community that you're from and that I'm from suffered a lot under Thatcherism. There were, of course, a lot of people who did very well indeed, thank you very much, and made huge amounts of mm. money during the 80s. And Elvis reflected that split in his audience, really, by, by talking about performing it at a folk festival. He said, I could see the audience quite clearly and all the way through, there was one guy nodding away, applauding every line. On the other side, there was another guy being physically restrained from getting up on the stage and hitting me. And I thought, well, I've really got a winner now. And of course, this was a musically and artistically, this was a very politicized decade, wasn't it? There were so many artists who were commenting on the society in which we lived at the time. Yeah, and it was a way of, you know, there's rock against racism. Um, there's certain types of music, like if you liked reggae um, and ska, then you were kind of a bit more groovy about people not having to be Caucasian to be human. Um, it's always sort of been a youth language, but it, 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 yeah, um, it was definitely there. And you've got things like Live Aid, where, oh, we can make money off the back of a thing that would be money for a good thing. Or something like uh, free Nelson Mandela, I mean. There was a Mandela bar at my university. I had no idea who it was named after until I read the little plaque on the wall. And then you have a record, free Nelson Mandela. And uh, it's, oh, is he not free? <laughs> who is this gentleman? <laughs> Why is it important that he should be free? Um, so it's it's a way of wrapping something up and make it, making you remember it. It's a way of making you feel feels while thinking. It's a very manipulative form in a way. Um, 
but sadly it's sort of the moment where culture really began to radically peel apart in an unhealable way and now it's just yeah it's or maybe it's the 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 moment just before media meant you could never have contact with whole areas of it because it became so big and so siloed the other thing is now obviously the angry guy in the bar who generally is the only angry guy in the bar he now has the mic for everything and that's a big problem the mainstream media now only channel largely and amplify that angry guy in the bar or they're terrified of that one angry guy in a whole bar and pander to him um that's been very toxic and corrosive so you know when thinking thinking about trap the dirt down you're thinking there's there's no way i mean he could have written and recorded that now but would that album have been allowed would i mean he'd, he'd have got death threats he'd have got mad people turning up at his house he'd have got a whole bunch of shit that wasn't happening back then Trump the Dirt Down was released on the album Spike in February 1989, uh, produced by Elvis with Kevin Killen and T-Bone Burnett. And just run through the musicians because it has that very distinctive sound to it. We've got Donald Lunny on a, a bazooki, Steve Wickham on fiddle, Davy Spillane on a whistle and pipes, Mitchell Froon plays an Indian harmonium, and then he has Jerry Chef, Pete Thomas, Michael Blair and Mark Rebo recorded in Dublin and in Ocean Way in LA. Elvis and the Attractions had performed an early version of the song in the mid-80s. They played at a benefit gig for the National Union of Miners and debuted Betrayal, a number Costello described as a hurriedly written song of provocation, which he intended to release as a benefit single. That version contained some of the lyrics that would eventually make up Tramp the Dirt Down, but Costello considered that betrayal was diluted by a detour into personal matters and lost both its meaning and its fire. When England was the heart of the world, Margaret was her matter. And the future looked as bright and as clear as the black time So that early run through of the song Betrayal was released on the reissue of King of America in the 2000s. And of course, Elvis continued to perform Tramp the Dirt Down even after the death of Margaret Thatcher in 2013. Uh, she'd suffered from dementia, as had Elvis's own dad. He said, I genuinely don't wish that on my worst enemy. And that's what I said every night when I introduced the song. And he always said, it's not only Thatcher that the song is aimed at, it's what she represented. Dangerous Amusements, a podcast for tormented souls doused in the ashes of unholy crosses. If we go back to the playlist, Bedroom Alibis, we need a song from the 1990s from you. And for this one, you've gone to the album Brutal Youth, which was released in March 1994, and the song This Is Hell. This is hell, this is hell. Sorry to tell you it never gets better or worse. 
But you'll get used to it after a spell For heaven is hell in It's hilarious and absolutely correct and just, yeah, just how embarrassing you are as a person. And if you could look back, it would be the terrible shirt. It would be the dreadful suit. It would be just the shabby ridiculousness it's 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 very like uh you know peer gint it's it's the beigeness it's not these big grandiose most people aren't murderers and serial killers they're just consistently a bit shit and not as good as they could be and just shameful and that will be hell. It will be the best of tracks of all of the times when you were shit. Um, and even the things that you thought you would like, like the naked starlets floating in champagne, which is so ridiculous and wonderful. Uh, and the scans so beautifully and rolls off the tongue so beautifully. It's just, it won't, it won't be what you want. It'll just be as ridiculous as it sounds. It, it, it won't be it. And the endless balmy breezes. It's not going to do it for you. Um, you're you're a fool. It's it's such a nice, you know, spiritually mature, beautifully sort of orchestrated, wonderfully sung. Uh, it's just lovely. He he has a he has a wonderful voice for. This is what your mind tells you at three a.m. That's a definite when you wake up sweating, guy. Oh, I'm not a nice person, am I? You know, it's the reality of, oh, no, really? Is that me? It is, isn't it? <laughs> I suppose sort of like the Deep Dark Truthful Mirror, except obviously the person that you're singing to in Deep Dark Truthful Mirror will never look in that mirror. You're 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 telling them that they're shit. Um, I used to sing that a lot when I was in a terrible relationship. But no, I, I, I just love it. I love the the sort of chiming sense in it. It's, it's just a glorious, glorious thing. Elvis produced it with Mitchell Froome and recorded it with the attractions. Bruce Thomas was back in for this track on Brutal Youth and it came out on that album in March 1994. And Elvis said it was an attempt to continue the fantasy afterlife theme of God's comic from Spike and Damnation's Cellar from the Juliet Letters. And of course, he picked out that that lovely line about the, the idea that when you're in hell, you can hear my favourite things by Richard Rogers, but it will always be the Julie Andrews version and not the John Coltrane one. <laughs> <laughs> and I even love the grammar of, of it. Because my favourite things, the things are plural. But he's actually talking about a singular thing, which is a song, but he uses a plural verb to sort of wrong foot you. Yes. 
and then kind of slap you. And it, it's, it's that attention to detail that I just makes me punch the air when anybody is, is thinking like that. It just makes me word nerdily hugely, hugely, hugely happy. Yeah. And just some of the other phrases that come up, the, the irritating jingle of the belly dancing phony Turkish girls, the eerie glare <laughs> of ultraviolet perfect dental work. These are fabulous lines, aren't they? <laughs> All of it, it all absolutely is literally unforgettable um, poetry. It, it absolutely just all the consonants and the vowels are in, are in absolutely the right place. It, it, the, the, there's no bending anything for scansion. It's, it's just beautiful. And it's somebody enjoying that they can do something. And I know that he sort of takes delight. I remember listening to him talking about a lost dog looking at a signpost and not being able to read the signpost. And just his delight in that as an idea that you could then put somewhere. And this is just, just a bag of these glorious ideas. And it's weird, all, all of those three Afterlife songs are among my favourites. Yeah, you mentioned God's comic, and I think that was close to being your choice for the 1980s as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I think as we do, um, I just love the, that idea of God um, kind of being slightly disinterested, tired, <laughs> huge and tired um, and disappointed. So I'm not angry, I'm mainly disappointed in this, again, a terrible flawed person with lipstick on the clerical collar who's sort of whiskey priest. And it's just musically beautiful, and it's got a beautiful, huge, long, silent pause in it. Um, and I did, I did enormously enjoy this youth theatre all doing this kind of amusement piece to it. And of course, they all froze in the silence, which was also kind of glorious. Yeah. So, how did that performance come about? Did you choreograph it? It was. Um, we did, we did a few plays with the Clydebank Community Youth Theatre. I think we did three shows and the, the middle show, we did a sort of mixed bag of uh, things, scenes, if I remember. And this was part of the mixed bag of scenes. And there was just a whole scene that was to this music. And they, they choreographed it. Uh, there was particularly one guy who was amazingly good. I think he also might have been supplying uh, members of the cast with uh, chemicals, but you know, <laughs> it was an interesting group of uh, youth. Maybe not, maybe I'm maligning them. Uh, people were huffing the hairspray that was in the wings. <laughs> I, thought it was, I thought it was for hair maintenance. <laughs> Stupid me. I think that's very bad for every part of your body to do that. But yeah, this, this guy particularly, I, they were just great, you know. There were these kids which if they'd been middle class they would all be on Tolina. They would all be much better versions of Lawrence Fox. The next song that you've chosen for us, this is for the 2000s and we are going to the North Sea Jazz Festival in 2004 and off the back of that Elvis released a live album My Flame Burns Blue recorded with the Metropole Orchestra and the song that you have chosen is a performance of his very first top 20 single Watching the Detectives. Mm -hmm. 
And nice girls not one with a deep thick cellophane shrink wrap so correct The red dog's under legal legs She looks so good that he gets down and Look at bags She is watching the detectives Oh, you're so cute She is watching the detectives Oh, well, they shoot, 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 shoot They beat him up and do a teardrop start But he can't afford it when he's got no heart It's one of these ones I loved it at the time And it's one that obviously uh, you know, when it fr first came out, you heard it a lot because it was in the charts. Um, but again, it's this imagination and he can do this whole imaginative landscape that's both a pastiche and a criticism of this whole crazy, noir, sexy, bizarre, damaged poem that's also full of this strange anguish. That shoot, shoot, shoot. It's it's just, you know, again, it's 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 beautifully written for the way that he knows he can sing. It's such a glorious piece of writing. It's it's this uh combination of a, a, a tribute to and a pastiche of and a criticism of and a celebration of this whole sort of bizarre noir world. Um and again, the sort of shoot, 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 the brokenness of the voice is wonderful. He always has this wonderful understanding of where he will fit vocally and what he can do vocally. And I love the sort of sexual dynamics, which are quite noir and quite often are quite noir of who's being damaged and who's not being damaged and it's just a glorious piece and this recording we've got here is from the 2000s with an orchestra behind it as well and i suppose that just tells you everything about its weight as a piece of songwriting that it can be interpreted in so many different ways and if he performs it now in 2023 he does it differently than he did in 1977 because he's constantly finding new nuances to it and different ways to bring that out for the audience i guess yeah, he's he's always changing, um, and you, you can bear them there because they're melodically so strong, usually, to just him and a guitar sort of folk version. Um, I remember him doing uh, Veronica like that, being quite surprised, but also kind of pleased. Um, or, yeah, you can go up to the full orchestra because there is always this very dense layering, layering of sound anyway. Because um, it's proper, it's proper music. Don't tell me you don't know what love is when you're old enough to know better. When you find strange hands in your sweater. Your next music choice is another live performance of an early Elvis classic. This one from the 1980s, but performed in the 2010s. This is Every Day I Write the Book. 
the original version recorded with the Attractions and Aphrodisiac, produced by Clive Langer and Alan Wynn Stanley, and released on the album Punch the Clock in June 1983. This version that we're hearing here is a live performance on the return of the spectacular spinning songbook in 2011. This performance from a gig at the Wilton in Los Angeles. I just love it. He's got such a big range. He can be so dark and obsessive and murderous and sweaty. And then he can do something like this, which has proper depth, but it's charming and it's funny and it's very young. It's, it's got a sort of innocence about it. It's just a glorious thing. And I mean, it, it feels very light. Um, but yeah, I've I've always had a soft spot for it because it's kind of yeah. Well, he's got two of the songs that are oh, this is this is my song. Uh, but it is it, it's lovely, yeah. And Elvis always said that it was almost not a throwaway. That's diminishing it a little bit. But he always said it was written. Uh, I think he said in about ten minutes as a bit of a spoof of an early Mersey beat tune. And then uh, Clive Langer comes up with the idea for the arrangement. And then a nice quote from Elvis. He said, "Although we borrowed a few touches from the R and B styles of the day, I have witnessed firsthand the record's ability to clear a nightclub dance floor in seconds." Yeah, I can't quite see it. Well, somebody like me who can't dance could dance to it because, you know, you can, can't dance to anything. Um, but, yeah, you know, the being old enough to know better than finding a strange hand in your sweater. I mean, it's still got that off-kilter thing. I mean, yeah, it's got the energy of throwaway. It's got the energy of just a silly sort of love song, but it, it's also disturbing. And the way he sings, the way you walk, the way you talk and try to kiss me, and like, that's got a real passion in it. So, it, yeah, I can see you can feel that the roots were responding to something that was just a very light Mersey beat. But, yeah, as soon as it gets elvis it becomes it becomes different. And it's it's got a sense of a real relationship with, like, the compliments and the cutting remarks which again sort of makes you think of all the rage. Um, you know, that that's that's a person. That's a person that he's talking to because he's so good at, at just doing what you do in a short story or in a poem um, in a very small number of words, trying to create a sense of somebody who exists and who knows people who also exist and they're the peculiar mix of light and dark and shade and bitterness and sweetness and love and irritation um, that come from the real world. So, yeah, I mean, it's got these lovely punch lines, lovely sort of not quite jokes, but I love, even in a perfect world where everyone was equal, I'd still own the film rights and be working on the sequel. It's it's a joke. It's almost like it's it's got a, the logic of a of a limerick, um, but it's right. You know, it's this it's this clever person trying to explain themselves to to somebody else and trying to win a battle on the page that you kind of get the feeling they aren't going to win it in reality, which is a very writerly thing. Because if we could talk to people, we wouldn't be writing at all. <laughs> um, and, and I obviously there's still a pen and an electric typewriter, uh, <laughs> neither of which really exist anymore, which is very cute. <laughs> One, two, three, four. 
So your final song choice for the playlist. Uh, this one comes from the 2020s, but again, we're going to use a live performance released in the decade to go back in time a little bit. This was a live version of Oliver's Army that was released on the 2020 Armed Forces Deluxe box set, and it appeared for the first time on the Riot at the Regent disc, recorded live with the attractions at the Regent Theatre in Sydney, Australia in December 1978, and of course, as we know, the original version released on Armed Forces in January 1979, and I know a, a big favourite of yours. Yeah, I mean, this has stayed with me um from the time it first came out and it was just this i do remember seeing that the music video for it and i even have i have somewhere the collected music videos of elvis costello and i i still love it and it, it was so weird and my dancing was so weird and i i remember dancing to it and it is undanceable too but i i loved it you know, and it's one of the first songs where I I would dance and I would sing along and I would go somewhere else. And so much of of my childhood and until I got to be sort of mid twenties was I would rather be anywhere else but here today. And the music carrying that and the sense of that, again, I took very very personally. But also I'd, I'd never come across a song and I barely sort of clocked, I suppose, about 10% of the politics. I mean, I was, I, was, I was not disagreeing with the politics, but I didn't quite get all of it. And then when you come back to it, and it's so rare when there's something that you liked when you're really very young, and then it reappears and it's all posh and it's a box set and it's on telly and it's got orchestrated different versions and it's slightly chunkier, not as dancing, not as drunk, um, Elvis Costello. Um, and it's really clever and it's pulling together, you know, uh, the history in the name Oliver. And you could continue that to Cromwell and Ireland. And he uses how the working classes are used in a number of songs, including obviously Trap the Dirt Down, but it's 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 here in this. And I know some people criticize some of his lines, but the way that he sings lets you know, you know, one less white nigger, why he's saying that word and how he's making it as unacceptable as it should be, but he's quoting somebody else quite often he'll quote other people so i know i mean obviously checkpoint Charlie is a bit out of date um sadly palestine isn't i mean i do remember being a young person and realizing that there were british uh, mercenaries overseas but obviously the whole idea of private armies is uh has been so energized by the quote-unquote war on terror and now you've got things like the Wagner group and it's just the same shoot show and those guys are being turned into hamburger in Bakhmut. I mean, it spoke to me and touched me and I, I think may have been the first time I both saw and heard Elvis Costello and he was the weird big glasses strange strange guy but so intense and the way he kind of 
folded himself around the microphone and fired himself down it at you and really, really, really meant it. Um, it was disturbing, but because I, I didn't know anybody else like that. Uh, and having grown up in a Beatles household, it was a bit disorderly and peculiar, but also absolutely mine. And I was coming up to the age I mean, I wasn't going to go into the army, but I was I was aware that I was approaching the point where I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. And I'm going to have to get a job and have what are the opportunities? Um, and in a way, Margaret Thatcher was a gift to me because there weren't any proper jobs. So I could do a stupid artistic thing because there was absolutely no hope of anything else. So I got the hopelessness, the fury, and it's a young fury being 16, 17, 18, and being fenced in to the sort of opportunities that you always get offered as a, as a working class person. Hmm. It's clear from the way you talk about that song and Tramp the Dare Down that the themes in a lot of Elvis's songs have really connected with you over the years. So if we just bring the conversation to a close, can you summarise what Elvis's music means to you? He makes me smile. His lines and lyrics occur to me really very often. They're so written, they aren't going to leave. They're just going to clonk into your head. Um, he's been company for me and somebody who understood the weird way I felt when I was a teenager and then the weird way I felt when I was in my 20s. And now he is understanding the weird way you feel when you're middle-aged. Um, I, I, I mean, he's a little bit older than me, but he's been company and somebody, you know, I occasionally get described as being unafraid in my work. He's he's one of the people who, who would be an example of being unafraid. But I think what he's been for me is an example of somebody who says what they have to say and the whole should I, shouldn't I conversation doesn't really occur. You just say it. Um, and company for all of the other weird people and angry people and lost people and hurt people and despairing people. And, and my life is, is incredibly comfortable now. Um, but so many other people's lives are so uh, atomized. Um, by all the things that he's been talking about for decades, that, that, that we've all been talking about for decades. Um, and you know, his aim was true. His aim was very, very, very true, intellectually, politically, spiritually, emotionally true. Um, so he'll be around forever. Um, turning up, you know, uh, I'd, I'd loved when he turned up on Stephen Colbert. I love Stephen, Stephen Colbert's uh, stuff, you know, being interviewed in America. Um, I loved when he turned up on, on an Austin Powers movie. You know, he just is somebody that people will bring in um, because he's such a big figure. So, I mean, he'll, he'll always, just, I'm pretty sure I do a playlist. I do a funeral playlist uh, fairly regularly. Um, there'll always be an Elvis Costello there. And I think the music that I play to the audience before I do uh, a comedy gig, there's usually, you know, it's like, I want Elvis to happen to you because that will put you on the same 
page as me. There will be some other things I will make you here, but I want Elvis to happen to you as well. And I still travel with them. And there are periods when I go without it for a bit and then I'll, you know, I'll come across something on the internet or there will be a reissue of something or there'll be a new version of something. Uh, or I'll go down a rabbit hole of performances that I haven't seen before. And it never, dis it never disappoints. It is one of those things that I can go back to and it, it deepens and widens. And it's, it's just such a sign of sign of quality and uh yeah i pray the lord his his soul to keep and uh, that he lives long and sleeps well at night thank you so much to al kennedy for joining me and for battling through one or two technical gremlins up there in wildest scotland you can find her on x as al kennedy at Writerer. Her website is a-l-kennedy.co.uk. Her song choices go on to the Bedroom Alibis playlist, which is now up on my website, dangerousamusements.co.uk. Follow the podcast on X, are we calling it that? Instagram, and now Threads. Thank you to everyone who's left a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and a rating on Spotify. Much appreciated. And it does help other people find the podcast. So if you'd like to toss some tatty compliment my way, I'll be very grateful. Thanks for listening. The theme music for Dangerous Amusements is performed by Gary Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to Dangerous Amusements. Now, close the door and deny you ever knew me.